So as Andrew said, we're going to be diving back into our Genesis series after we took a three-week break where we looked at Ascension, Pentecost, and Trinity Sunday. And today, I am going to be talking to you about the flood, about Noah and the ark. Now, this story is often taught in children's church and written about in kids' books. Maybe you have not read this part of the story in the Bible for a while um, because you think you already know it. You've maybe already formed your opinions uh, about what it's about based on what you learned when you were little. When many of us think about this story in our minds, we are immediately transported to like some fun cartoon illustrations with very cute animals and a happy, smiley-looking Mr. Noah and Mrs. Noah. Some of us might even have some children's songs going around in our heads, like, God told Noah to build him a... Yeah, see? Some of you also grew up in church. Um, the funny thing is, I'm not quite sure how this became a kid's bedtime story. Um, the material in this section of the Bible can actually be quite tricky. And today, we can ask ourselves, have we actually been taught the real story? After childhood, I can't actually remember getting a lot of teaching about the flood. In fact, when you take the happy cartoon animals out of it, this part of the Bible can actually be very problematic for some people, as it's one they would rather not think about. It can make them question what they know about a loving God. Today, I plan to look at what the Bible actually says about the flood, and so we can address some of our preconceived ideas. So let's pick up where we left in the story in Genesis. Genesis 6, verses 5 to 8. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The world is in a terrible state here. A few weeks ago, Andrew taught us about the first murder, when Cain took the life of his brother Abel. And remember, God tells us that when Cain took his brother's life, the blood of Abel actually cried out from him from the ground, cried out to him from the ground. And since Cain and Abel, and as humanity multiplies on the earth, there is this downward spiral until we get to this particularly unsavory character called Lamech. He was Cain's ancestor, and he went around boasting about killing a man while he was threatening his wives. Genesis 5, 23 to 24. One day, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Listen to me, you wives of Lamech. I have killed a man who attacked me, a young man who wounded me. If someone who kills Cain is punished seven times, then the one who kills me will be punished 77 times. 
God looks down over his creation and sees how great human wickedness has become. And he goes on to say something heartbreaking here. The wickedness of mankind is so great, he actually says he regrets making them. Genesis 6 verse 5. Every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. God's plans for human to humans to co-rule with him on the earth as his representatives was going terribly wrong. Humans are now the problem with creation as their thoughts and actions are only evil. The Hebrew word for evil is ra, so the thoughts of their hearts were ra all of the time. The human blood spilled on the earth is crying out to him. Humans are deciding what is good and evil for themselves, and this is the outcome. Now, this is a direct contrast with what we are told in the beginning when God looked over his creation. Remember in Genesis 1.31, it says this, Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. What has happened to God's precious creation? There is a problem. And we read that God was grieved to his heart. Or in the NLT version, it puts it like this. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. The author is describing God's emotion here. His heart was broken. The wickedness and brokenness of the human heart is what breaks God's heart. We do not read about God's great anger here. When some people think about the floods, they imagine an angry God causing the ruin of the earth. But what is the emotion that God is actually feeling? Pain and heartbreak. Keep this in mind as we move on. God looks upon the earth and sees only wickedness in the hearts of humans. But there is one man that found favor in his eyes, Noah. Earlier on in Genesis 5, in the genealogy from Adam, we hear about Noah for the first time. Genesis 5, verse 28. When Lamech, now this is a different Lamech from the one I talked to you about with his wives and with the boasting. But when this Lamech was 182 years old, he became the father of a son. Lamech named his son Noah, for he said, May he bring us relief from our work and the painful labor of farming this ground that the Lord has cursed. So Noah's name actually means rest and comfort. Genesis 6 verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah is righteous, in right relationship with God, and Noah is blameless. Now, the word translated as blameless here in the Hebrew is the word tamim, and that means complete or whole or without blemish. And it's actually the same word that's used to describe what type of sacrificial animal is being used is to be used later as an offering in the Bible. Like in Exodus 12, your lamb shall be without blemish, tamim. 
a male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. We read that Noah also walked with God. Adam walked with God in the garden, and Noah had a great-great-grandfather who was also described as walking with God. His name was Enoch. Do you remember him? Noah is in right relationship with God, and he knew him. Can it be that one man's righteousness before God can count for more than just himself? In this story, God sees Noah's righteousness and he saves him. But not only him, his family as well. This is the first time in the Bible that this happens. But we see this pattern being repeated time and time again until we get to Jesus, the ultimate righteous one. Through him, we are all saved. If we move on to Genesis 6, verse 11, it says this. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for humanity had corrupted its way upon the earth. The good creation was now corrupt. The land was ruined and filled with violence because of the shedding of innocent blood. Because of humanity's evil and sin, the whole earth had become corrupt. Now, verse 13 is crucial to understanding the way of God's heart. And I have used the NASV version as the translation is, as it is more in keeping with the original Hebrew. So it says this. Then God said to Noah, the end of humanity has come up before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of people, and behold, I am about to destroy the earth. Other translations might say something like this. So God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. This is quite different. Listen to this. The end of humanity has come up before me. This is truer to what was originally being said. And when you see this difference, it's eye-opening. The end had come up before God. Creation was already ruined. The process had already begun. And here we see a broken-hearted God handing humans over to the, the destruction that they had caused that was already in motion. And when God says he is about to destroy them, this is an acceleration of a process that had already begun and that was going to come to an inevitable end. Out of just mercy, he is making an end to the violence and bloodshed and the ruined creation. God is reacting to the increasing evil from humans and responding from a broken heart. He is allowing an already ruined creation to collapse. God is about to bring about a decreation, but through decreation, he is making it possible for this disordered creation to be reordered. The violence already ruined God's good creation, and the flood that God brings upon the earth is used so that renewal can take place. The flood story is a story where justice and mercy come together. 
God hands over humans to the choices that they have made as he brings about the destruction of his creation. But God saves not only Noah, but his family as well. He saves them as a remnant so that he can start again. And this is an act of mercy. In fact, we begin to see that the story actually points towards the goodness of God and his redemptive plan to, dis- to restore a broken creation. Move on to Genesis 6, verse 14. God says, Build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. And then we get this um, quite detailed description about lengths and things about the ark. But if we move on to verse 17, it says this, Look, I am about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die, but I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of animal and every kind of animal Pairs of every kind of bird, sorry, and every kind of animal, and every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground will come to, to you to be kept alive. And be sure to take on board enough food for your family and for all the animals. So Noah did ex- everything exactly as God had commanded him. Now, the words in this section should cast your mind back to something, to the creation story. It's the same step-by-step process that happened in Genesis 1. As you imagine this procession going onto the ark, the birds, the animals, the animals that scurry along the ground, the big biblical author wants you to make a connection here. The ark is a boat made from wood. The literal translation of the word wood here is tree. Does this remind you of anything? We have a sanctuary where trees are very important. The sanctuary is filled with pairs of animals, male and female, and they are living in peace with humans. Just like God placed man in Eden, he placed Noah and his family in the ark, and he provides food for them. The ark is going to become a place of order, a little floating Eden in amongst the chaos that is happening around them. This little Eden is a protected space where heaven and earth meet. Do you see the similarity between the ark and Eden? God is creating order amongst the chaos and creating a place for mankind to flourish and prosper. Noah then does exactly as God said, and Genesis 7 says this, Then the Lord closed the door behind them. For 40 days, the flood waters grew deeper, covering the ground and lifting the boat high above the earth. As the waters rose higher and higher above the ground, the boat floated safely on the surface. Finally, the water covered even the highest mountains on the earth, rising more than 22 feet above the highest peaks. All the living things on earth died. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the people. Everything that breathed and lived on dry land died. God wiped out every living thing on the earth. People, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and the birds of the sky, all were destroyed. 
The only people who survived were Noah and those with him in the boat, and the flood water covered the earth for 150 days. Remember in Genesis 1 when God created order from disorder, or ohu wa bohu. <laughs> when the earth was formless and void, we are about to see the cosmos collapsing in on itself as the waters that were separated in the heavens and earth come back together. And this coming back together of the waters is going to destroy everything with the breath of life in them. God removes from creation his breath of life that is supporting its life. And he is about to give them over to their consequences. However, God does preserve this remnant or a seed in the ark that will bring about a new creation. Again, we are seeing this correlation between what God is doing in the flood and what happened in the creation story, but it's in reverse order. In Genesis 8 verse 1, it says this, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock with him in the boat. He sent a wind to blow across the earth and the floodwaters began to recede. This verse is the pivot moment in the story. God remembered. It's not like he forgot about him, like when I forget all the time where I put my keys or phone. But it's more like this was the moment where God was about to make goods on the promise that he gave to Noah. This is the turning point of the story. Everything that happened so far to bring about the collapse of the cosmos back into disorder is about to be reversed one by one in the order that it happened. The cosmos was put back into non-order so that God can recreate. The order in which God begins this recreation follows the same pattern as the creation days. Keep in our mind the teaching that you've had on Genesis 1 as, as you read this, and you are supposed to make connections. There's lots of them. Firstly, in the verse, we read that God sent a wind to blow across the earth as the waters were about to recede. Does that remind you of anything from the creation story? Genesis 1.1 says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. This is again God's spirit or ruach brooding over the waters as he is about to separate them again to make dry land appear. He is making order from chaos. The waters from below stop flowing and the rain stops too and then the flood waters recede and the ark rests on the mountains. Then Noah sends out some birds, a raven first, the ritually unclean bird, and then the dove, the ritually clean bird. And the dove brings back an olive leaf, telling us that trees have come to life again. Noah is testing God's faithfulness to him as his faithfulness to God is also being tested. This is the first time that we see someone in the Bible faithfully waiting on God. He has this divine promise from God and Noah is waiting on him. He looked first with the raven and then he looked again and again. 
And we see this waiting on God theme appear over and over again in the biblical narrative. Genesis 8, 15 to 17. Then God said to Noah, leave the boat, all of you, and your wife, and your sons, and their wives. Release all of the animals, the birds, the livestock, the small animals that scurry along the ground, so they can be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth. God has saved a remnant, and what does he tell them to do? Be fruitful and multiply. He repeats the same command that he did in the garden. Noah is now the new Adam, and he is placed once again on a high place, and he plants a garden. And he too is commissioned to be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 8.20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took of every clean animal, of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Noah builds an altar, and he offers sacrifices to God. A burnt offering. But think how valuable and precious these animals were. Their job was to repopulate the earth, and Noah chooses something precious and of great value to him, and he chooses those things to sacrifice to God. And we read that God is pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice. This reminds us of Abel's pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. But the next part is so interesting. Look what God says. Genesis 8, 21 to 22. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth, nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done, as long as the earth endures seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, Day and night shall not cease. Yahweh has brought justice on a ruined creation. But we learn here, right after the flood, and just after this pleasing sacrifice has been offered up to God, that he says in his heart, there is still problems in the human heart. And those problems need to be dealt with. The root problem is actually the human heart, which is bent towards evil or ra, and that has not changed. So, the very reason why God caused the collapse of the cosmos, ra, in the human heart all the time, is now going to be the exact reason why he's never going to do it again. God knows that humans are going to sin again and that this will repeat over and over and over. But what we are witnessing here is the first atoning sacrifice where the wickedness of the human heart can be covered or accounted for when one who is righteous is willing to give up something that is precious. This is going to change how God responds to the inevitable human failure from now on. God is going to adopt a different strategy for humans to rule and reign on the earth. This time, he says, he will never again destroy the cosmos every time they deserve to die. Instead, God is about to make a covenant with them. 
Atonement is possible, and we see here that one life can cover for the sins of many. At the very beginning, in Genesis, God is pointing towards one who was to come, whose suffering and death and burial and resurrection will be once and for all the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. Genesis 9. Then God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants and with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Then God said, I am giving you a sign of my covenant with you and with all living creatures for the generations to come. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is a sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. And God gives us a sign in the sky, a bow, which is a symbol of death. But the bow is not pointing towards earth. It is pointing upwards towards heaven. Now, the kids in our church are currently going through the Jesus Storybook Bible, written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. But I think that she, even though she's a children's writer, she captures this part of the story beautifully. This is what she wrote when she was talking about the end of this Noah story. And the first thing God did was make another promise. I won't ever destroy the world again. And like a warrior who puts away his bow and arrow at the end of a great battle, God said, See, I have hung my bow in the clouds, and there in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light. It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again, but God wasn't surprised. He knew this would happen. That's why before the beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan. A plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it. A plan to one day send his own son, the rescuer. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people, it was pointing up towards the heart of heaven. God is a redemptive God who loves to redeem and recreate. And Noah was a righteous man who obeys God and is delivered safely through the flood waters. He offers the first atoning sacrifice, which is pleasing to God. He is the seed and remnant who God uses to repopulate the earth in a renewed creation. But as we read on in the story, we realize that he is a messianic figure, but he is not the one who is truly righteous. The people in the Bible are always looking for the one that was to come, the Messiah, the one through whom God would restore his kingdom and redeem his people from what had been lost in the garden. Eve thought it could be Cain and then Seth, believing that maybe they were the ones that were to redeem them. Noah was promising but we know he wasn't the one either. Next come Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and eventually David. The reality was there was no one that could really fulfill this promise. 
The messianic hope was like a silhouette that needed to be filled, a shadow in the future, and none of the promising figures really took its shape. No one really fit. What we see in the flood story is the beginning of God's continual pursuit to bring his creation back into right relationship with him, and this story points us towards Jesus. Jesus is the truly righteous one. Through him, many are saved. When he was baptized, the spirit hovered over the waters like a dove. He offers himself up as the perfect atoning sacrifice. And a tree plays a very important part of this story too. Jesus is raised up on a wooden cross. God's justice and mercy were carried out, but not on all of creation, but on Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. And the curtain was torn as heaven meets earth through Jesus, and there is a new covenant for all nations. Romans 5, 17 says this. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one person obeyed God, many will become righteous. Now because of Jesus, we too can experience this redemption Our old self dies with us in the water of baptism and we rise as a new creation. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, he has now made a way for us to become a new creation or a new kind of human. This new life he brings actually restores humanity's original calling in the garden to inhabit heaven and earth and to be co-rulers Um, in creation with him forever. 